0: It is with great joy I invite you to open your copy of God's perfect and precious Word this morning to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. We will be looking together this morning at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Looking at the all head, no heart church. Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. I'll ask you to stand in reverence for the reading of the perfect and precious Word of our God Listen to His Word prayerfully, asking God to give you good soil in your heart that you may receive it and that it may bear fruit in your life. We hear not just about Him when we read His Word, we hear from Him. Listen this morning to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation 2, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently. And bearing up for My namesake. And you have not grown weary. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the work you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has ears, as an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Let us pray. Lord, we have sung this morning the words of our Lord Jesus who said they will know us by our love. And we ask for that to be true. There are some here this morning who have never known the love of Christ because they have never put their faith in Him as the only hope of their salvation. They've never looked to Him as Lord and Savior. I prayed that they would do so today. There are those who have known that love and yet have moved away from it in all kinds of ways. May we also repent. That our fellowship may be restored. That we may walk and live in a way that is in line with the Gospel. And that may we hold the truth as it is in Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One time when I was serving another church, I announced that I'd be preaching from the book of Revelation on Sunday. There was a particular person who came up to me all excited and said, That's fantastic. I'm so excited you're going to be preaching from Revelation. And I said, Great. So Sunday came and uh, I got up and said I want you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2 and 3 and I gave sort of an overview of this section that deals with the seven churches. After the service the person came up with me and said, came up to me and said, "I thought you said you were going to preach from Revelation on Sunday." I said, "What do you mean? I did" They said, no, 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 no. You just preached about the churches. I mean the real revelation-y stuff. The idea is that stuff about the churches is sort of mundane. We've got a handle on that. Give us the other stuff. Give us the visions of Christ. Give us the ecstasies of heaven. Give us these grand battles. Let's look at the stuff that Revelation is really about. But all of that stuff is about the churches. Revelation is about Christ. Thus, Revelation is about those who conquer in Christ the churches. Skip the church? Christ says no. You cannot bypass the church. There are plenty of people today who want to bypass the church. They want to have individual ecstasies in the sight of God. They want to have individual ecstasies Visions. They want to have individual battles. The church seems like a hindrance, just another thing to to sort of bog you down from the, the real experiential stuff of one's individual life. And yet, when the Gospel saves us, the Gospel unites us, and the Gospel puts us in community. Let me say it to you this way. Our faith is personal, intimately personal, but it is never merely individual. To be united to Christ, the Lord of all, is to be united to the head of the church. It's to be a part of the bride of Christ. We must understand and we must think our lives out in light of Christ and the community that He binds us to, the household of God, the church of Jesus Christ. The church is located geographically, different places around the world, but the church is always defined Christologically. It's always defined by Christ. So Christ transforms a group of people who commit to live together accountable to one another in Lexington, Kentucky. But He does the same thing in Saudi Arabia. He does the same thing in South America. does the same thing in China and all around the world. We are defined by His grace and we are all given His Word And it is to shape us together. If the church is not what excites you, the problem is with your understanding. Every time you gather for corporate worship, it ought to fill you with a sense of awe at what God has done building this body. And then when your thoughts go around the world, and you think about all of the normal barriers and lines that are crossed in Christ as people that are normally completely different and normally would hold their differences against one another for the purpose of superiority, look at one another and say, brother and sister, family, there's a man named John John was a disciple of Jesus and he was a bold disciple of Jesus and at this point in our text he's somewhere in his mid 80s and he has been exiled as a political prisoner to a rocky island where people would be sent off named the Isle of Patmos on the Isle of Patmos, because he would not say Caesar is Lord, because Jesus is Lord, the testimony of the church, and why at the end of the day, the church doesn't just make statements about political realities, the church itself is a political statement. We are the people who will never say Caesar is Lord, no matter what form Caesar comes in. He's worshiping God. The text tells us that John is in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. He's recognizing the Lord's Day even in the midst of his political exile. He is not sitting around pouting about his circumstance. He is worshiping. And the Bible tells us that the angel of Christ comes to him and comes to John and gives John this amazing vision of Jesus Christ. And he instructs him to record that vision for the seven churches. Now, if we were to take a line from where John is and draw it to those churches, we see that the, these letters are going to churches in a, in a geographical pattern with Ephesus first because it's the closest. The mail carrier would get there first. And it's making a circle around to these churches and the churches themselves are located in the center of the areas where they are and there are seven churches to communicate to us that these seven churches are representative of the types of issues in all churches. And in these letters, one thing that we will see, it speaks to an individual church. And then when it comes down to the very end, and it says, he who has ear and ear, let him hear, it says churches. And so all of the messages in these particular letters to particular churches have been recorded so we as churches will look in and be shaped and formed by them. Now the city of Ephesus was a huge metropolitan area of the time. It was a prominent city in Asia Minor and it was the fourth largest city in the entire Roman Empire. Emperor Domitian is is ruling and he is persecuting believers and John is one who has been persecuted. But this city of Ephesus is a seaport city and it is marked by all of the things that we think about when we think about big cities and major urban centers. It was full of business. It was full of sports. Particular games in the regions were held there. It was full of Uh, of businesses and, and the academic centers. And it was marked by the sort of immorality that you get when you jam people together in large areas. And it was marked by a religious pluralism. And there was a particular religious worship there that was known all over the world at that time. There was the goddess Artemis. And, and, and there was an amazing temple there and mixed in with this worship is all sorts of, uh, fertility things and, and sexuality and all these sorts of things. But it was a, it was a part of the culture in such that people made money selling objects associated with it. And it was also a city that was marked by all kinds of religion and magic, what we might call the occult. It was founded under the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila as they went there with Paul. Paul left and then Paul came back and Paul was preaching the gospel there and people started burning their magic books and people started not buying the trinkets and that led to a riot. It's always follow the money. He's hurting our business. He's saying there is no God but this one God. And so this riot ended up with Paul leaving, but Timothy was planted there. And Timothy had faithful ministry there. And if church history is to be believed, John himself spent a great deal of time there. So this is a church that John knows. And this is a church he cares about and he is burdened about. And we see it's a church facing many of the kinds of issues we face today. Look the other way. Give the political power your allegiance, no matter what. Embrace the sexual immorality in the cultural context. Just fit in. Now one thing that we're going to see as we see each one of these letters is that each letter begins by naming the church And then there's a restatement of some aspect of the vision of Christ that we saw in Revelation chapter 1. Now that particular aspect of who Christ is, is put forward to this church because that's the very thing that the church needs to look at, think about, and center their lives on. In other words, the message in these letters is that the problem in the church always is a failure to center the church on Jesus Christ. And there are particular things that we are to know about Christ. That is to transform our lives together. So as we work through this, I want you to see the headings are going to be essentially the same for all of these letters each week. And then there's a particular reference to this particular church. We see, first of all, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, the Lord of the church, sovereignly present. What it's going to tell us about Jesus here, is He's going to remind them in the church at Ephesus that Jesus is the one who is sovereignly present in their midst. Look with me, beginning in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of Him who holds the seven stars in His right hand. Now, I'll remind you that the seven stars it told us specifically in chapter 1 verse 20 are the, are the angels of the churches. That could be a reference to the pastors of the churches, the messengers the word means. Or it could be a re- reference to Angels, the guardian angel, if you will, of the churches. But whatever it is, it means that Christ is looking out for the good of the churches by putting His messenger there. And He is holding the messenger in His hand, meaning that He's holding the church in His hand. Now the word here for hold here is stronger than the language that was used before. It's the idea of Clinging, seizing. In other words, Christ has a firm grasp of these messengers of the churches and thus the churches themselves. Look as it continues. Holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. It told us that the seven golden lampstands were the churches themselves. Holds the messengers firmly in His grasp by His sovereign power after all. The one we're talking about here was crucified and raised from the dead. And He's alive. And He's reigning. And He's holding the messengers. And He is walking, it says, present active, continually in the midst of the churches. He is among His churches. He's not on the side... He's not above looking in. He is walking in the midst of his churches. He is there. He is right in the middle. The risen, reigning, ascended, and glorified Christ. Now, do you see what this picture is about? He says, I have not spun the world into existence. And from a distance, I leave you to your own devices. You are mine. I am among you. In fact, I am holding you. And the reference to the church as lampstands, the lampstand in the context of the Old Testament in the in the worship areas where It would illuminate the area that was marked out to be what represented the presence of God. The churches are to reflect the light of the light of this world. Christ Himself who came as the complete presence of God. The complete manifestation of the presence of God. Churches, you are to illumine Christ to everybody who sees you. You are to... Point people to the light of the world knowing that I care for you. I've not left you all no matter what you're going through. That's a message to John as he's a political exile on this place in the middle of nowhere. He is saying, Christ is with me. Christ is with you, church at Ephesus. We are never, ever alone. Christ is sovereignly present. And by the way, That is the best thing about the church at Ephesus. And that is the best thing about Ashland Avenue Baptist Church as well. What is desperately needed at all times is for us to be absolutely aware that Christ is sovereignly present. He is to be in the center of our thinking. About everything. Thus Paul says, I am determined to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. And elsewhere he says, you take every thought captive to obey Christ. We can't treat Christ, we must not treat Christ like He's over on the side and we can do things without reference to Him. He is to be in the center. That leads to the next thing in verses 2 and 3. What is right in the church? What is right in the church at Ephesus is doctrine and discernment. It's a theologically committed church. This is a church able to discern about theological issues, truth and error. Look with me, at the beginning of verse two. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Now, your works is is just a word for general activity and ministry. In other words, I see what you've been doing. Toil is a heightening to that. Meaning that not only have you been ministering and serving, you've been doing so to the point of weariness. You've been doing it to the point of exhaustion. This is not a lazy church that does not have a lot of things going on. And then he points to their patient endurance. In other words, their perseverance. They faced all kinds of challenges. We're going to see from false teachers. But they've had the ability to get through that. They have suffered through the pain and difficulty of that and they have kept pressing forward and they haven't let go of the truths that the false teachers were attacking. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for My name's sake and you have not grown weary. Now there are nine things he says here to commend the church. Nine, your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you don't bear with those who are evil, how you've tested those who call themselves an apostles or not, or not, how you've judged them to be false, how you've endured patiently, how you're bearing up from my namesake, and the fact you have not grown weary. All of this is good. This church was busy and active. This church was able to say, no, that is doctrinal error that is not true, that is false, we will stand with what is true. And the implication is that they have gone through so much that most people would at this point be weary. Weary of the battle. Weary of contending. But they have not grown weary. Now think about it. This is a church that does not take truth lightly. Paul had warned the Ephesian elders in Acts 20:29 20, about savage wolves that would come in. His word to them was true and they have faced them. They would come in and they were ready. They had theological guardrails. They knew their theological commitments. They were doctrinally aware. They were doctrinally committed. They were doctrinally loyal. They were willing to discipline those in their midst who were living in rebellion to the moral law of God or living in rebellion to the truth of God. This is a church willing to do church discipline. This is not a feel-good, sentimental, theologizing, Jesus-talk church. This is a church known for truth. I think at least in some measure, you can say that Ashland Avenue, for its entire history, has been known as a church really committed to the Word. Bold. Willing to stand for truth. And what I want you to see here is this is all good. It's really good. This is the commendation of Christ. It is to be commended in the church at Ephesus and in churches today. But, not all is well. As Christ looks to this church and as the vision of Christ says, He looks with His piercing eyes that are as a flame of fire, speaking to the reality of Christ as the ultimate discerner of whether or not something is righteous and true. And it says that he looks in this church and he sees something wrong. So what's wrong in the church? It's a lack of love. Verse 4. But, now all of the connectors before were and, this Translation actually translates one of them, but, but it's the same word for and throughout. It's sort of breaking it up there. But but this is the first time a new word is used. But, in other words, those nine things of commendation, but, here's the contrast, I have this against you, that, or it could be translated since, you have abandoned the love you had at First. You have abandoned, you have left behind the love you ha- had at first. So there was a time when they were marked by love in a way they are not marked by love now. Now, they were marked by truth then, and they kept clinging to truth, but somehow, some way, their clinging to truth became less truth in love. As Paul describes it and how it should be. Now, we've got to hear this warning. It is one for us to take very seriously. Now, commentators debate over love you had at first. Love for what? Some say love for Christ Himself. Some say love for one another. You'll know you're Christians by the way we love one another. Some say love for the lost. In other words, love to take the Gospel out to the lost in the world, that they may know Christ, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. The love that we are to have even for our enemies as we take the Gospel to them. Which is it? I don't think we have to choose. In fact, I don't think those things can be completely separated. A lack of love for the lost is always the fruit of a failure to rightly center our lives on Christ. A lack of love for one another is always the fruit of us not understanding just how amazing it is that Christ has loved us and everything is about Christ. Now the problem in churches like ours is not that we would disown Christ, but the problem is that sometimes we displace Christ something else gets at the center. It's one thing to be committed to truth because Christ is at the center and we understand that truth in light of Him. It's another thing to push Christ to the margins and put a particular truth at the center and act as though Christ serves that truth. It's a different thing. When he talks about the church being a lampstand, it is to illuminate the presence of the light of the world. In other words, point people to the light of the world, Christ. And so somehow, way, this church in its commitment to stand for the truth was not pointing to Christ in the way it should. It was pointing to particular truths as an end in and of themselves, which they are not. One pastor told me one time, he said, have you ever noticed that all brand new believers are wide eyed about learning? That they're wide eyed about stepping into a community of faith and and having a network of people to encourage them along and how they're they're generally just sort of they don't have any inhibitions about saying, let me tell you how Jesus has changed my life. They've got sort of an outward. I want other people to know this. And then he said, we seem to have developed a process and we're determined to train them to be stuffy, self-righteous, boring, sophisticated, and arrogant. Far too often it's true. Here's what I think. I think that if we don't fight the fight, we become spiritual bureaucrats. A lot of us are frustrated with politicians. Politicians just seem to care about uh, their own image and not really care about the issues. And it all seems to be a a game that they're playing. They will justify anything that they do. And, and, And it's just about keeping the image up. It's just about... And it can start being for us. Spiritual bureaucracy. Keeping the image up. What do we want others to think about us? And we start hearing the truths of the Scripture without a broken and contrite heart. As somehow, way, we almost deserve to be here. And if only the other people would be righteous like we are. Oh, yeah, yeah, salvation is by grace through faith. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know that, but... It's so easy to do. It's so easy to become a spiritual bureaucrat. It's so easy to get caught up in the busyness of life and even the busyness of our spiritual lives. It's so easy to lose a sense that we are to point people to the light of the world and become inwardly focused as if our spiritual life is just about us uh, uh, maintaining our own sense of personal well-being, individualized way. As if the Bible is a self-help book just about us and us managing our issues. You know, one example of this is you know, there are a lot of things out there that build themselves discernment ministries. Usually, a discernment ministry is the least discerning reality in Christian church. right? Because a lot of people in those ministries don't discern issues. They get their identity by simply saying everybody's wrong about everything and every issue has the same weight. And so... They make money by calling everyone a heretic. That's not discernment. We have to be on guard that we don't become our own individualized discernment ministry. You know, I've always... uh, Thought about people come in. Oh man, I love it. Y'all tell it straight here. You say the truth. You don't back down. And then the same person, as soon as you say something they don't one hundred percent agree with, I'm out of here. Right? It's never about the truth in the first place. I hope you do understand that there's a sense in which you can lose what you loved at first. You see this all the time in marriages. People get married. You know, I've, I've really never known anybody who planned on getting divorced on their wedding day. There's a sense of, oh, I appreciate this person. I get to spend my life with them. And then oftentimes, there's not even a lot of real problems. You just get busy doing life. And guess what? You don't maintain your relationship. And I see all the time, one of the main problems in marriages is the people are not married, they are business partners. Business partners in getting the children where they need to go, business partners in maintaining appearances with all the things that they do, and all of the things that they did in the beginning to get to know one another, they don't do anymore, they just simply get on with the bureaucracy of living in the world, and really, they're roommates, I can't tell you the number of people I've counseled about their marriage and and people in ages where you wouldn't believe it and they've been almost no intimacy for a decade. Anything you take for granted, you lose a sense of it. We start thinking other things will make us happy. This, this, this. And if we went back to the first and the way we pursued this and the way we were wide-eyed about it, it would come back, but we often don't. New believers are almost always blown away that people in the church would take time with them and, and minister them and serve them. But guess what? A lot of times you go along a little bit and then it changes from, I can't believe somebody would spend time with me. Well, why don't people do more for me? Spiritual bureaucracy. It's often true that sometimes we are helped by people in our spiritual life and then we learn new truths and new things that may be different from the people who helped us and now we look down our nose at the people who helped us, which doesn't make any sense in the world. You need to ask yourself the question, would I today minister to the person I was 20 years ago? Because somebody ministered to you. Somebody stepped into your life. If the answer is no, you've got a real problem. And it's so easy for us to lose in sense in which we think about the lostness and the sin associated with lostness. It's so easy for us to stop remembering that we we're as lost as they are. Nobody is any farther from Christ and His kingdom than you were. Nobody. Now, are there certain sins that have more societal consequences? Well, yeah. But are there certain sins that, that put you farther away from God's kingdom? No! No! That's why to break the law at one place, James says, is to break the whole thing. You were as far away from Jesus and His kingdom as anybody you have ever known. That should affect the way you think about them, and that should affect whether or not you think the gospel really has the power to save them, because the answer is yes, it does. I remember when I was first converted, somebody gave me an NIV study Bible and we wore that thing out. Judy and I had fairly new believers together and uh, we would actually just get together and just sit around and read it. We have to rekindle that in our own life in all kinds of ways. So let, me, let me give you a couple of warnings that Paul gives. 1 Corinthians 8.1, the Apostle Paul says, food offered to idols, in other words, people who say, listen, this issue of food offered to idols, people have this all wrong. And then he says this this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. His point is, there are people who are on the right side of that issue, but they're on the right side of that issue, abstracted from Christ, and being on the right side of that issue has them proud. Where real knowledge with Christ at the center always humbles you. If I know something that somebody else does it's because that doesn't know it's because of the grace of God it's not just because you have a higher spiritual IQ you were born lost your spiritual IQ apart from the grace of God is zero we have to fight to remember first Corinthians thirteen two. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. All head, no heart dishonors Christ. Because the only way to be all head and no heart is to move Christ out of the center. That's like the only way to be all heart and no head is to move Christ out of the center. It's head and heart. Mind and affections given over to Him. The church is to provide a path to help people and call people to walk in line with the Gospel. Quickly, the next few verses. Verses 5 and 6, we see Christ counsel to the church. Here it is. Remember, repent, and redo. Look at verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Okay? We were here. Truth. Overwhelmed by love. We've moved here. We've lost a sense of love as we look at 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 the world, as we think about Christ, as we think about our neighbor, as we think about our fellow believers, as we think about the lost, what do we do? We remember. Remember how lost we were. Remember the Gospel. Remember the mercy that we needed. Remember the grace that we needed. Remember what saved us. Repent. Turn from where we are, and turn back to Christ. And so think of ourselves in relation to Christ, and think of others in relation to Christ, and then we do the works we did at first. What did we do? We told people about Christ. We spent time with people. We were amazed by the word. And we start pouring ourselves into those things. Just like a lot of marriages, if you just go back and you'd start trying to know the person again and spend time with them and pray together and do those things. But if you don't, there are consequences. And he says, If not, I will remove the lampstand. It's definitely a warning. It's a judgment to the church at Ephesus and, brothers and sisters, to us. Without love, a congregation ceases to be a church. Its light may be put out because it is not focused on Christ. Now, lest anyone think that this is a call for being soft on doctrine and fuzzy regarding error, it is not. That's what we always want to do. We want to do one or the other. Truth is. At the center, love at the center. Love. Just warm fuzzies. Christ over here. Now, that's not the way it works. Head and heart. Look with me at verse 6. Yet this you have. In other words, let me give you one more commendation. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Well, hate's a strong word. He says they're right to hate the works of the Nicolaitans. We're not really sure what the works of the Nicolaitans are, but I can assure you this, they're bad. If we look at when they come up again, it seems that it had to do with uh, uh, some sort of sexual immorality and, and pridefulness. And he says, listen, you hate that? I hate that. That's okay. But even in the sense of hating the works of the Nicolaitans, they had to believe that God had the power to save the Nicolaitans and want them to be brothers and sisters in Christ. Do you see that? And why don't you apply that to all the sins you look out at the world today and shake your head at? Listen, transgenderism is a sin. And I want to reach transgenders with the gospel and everything else. Now, I say that because some of you say, I don't want those people around here. That'll be weird. I'll have to talk to my kids. Get over yourself. Jesus, Jesus. We want the gospel to be made much of in this place. Our doctrine and discernment is good and praiseworthy as long as it does not become abstracted from remembering, repenting, and redoing. And if you don't remember the last time you, you remembered, repented, and redid, then you've lost your first love. Because that's what you did at the beginning. One other thing, verse 7. The promise for the church to eat of the tree of life. Now this is so glorious because... Revelation keeps putting all the Bible back together again for us to understand. The very beginning, the fall into sin. They were forbidden to eat of the tree of life. Fiery angels protecting it so nobody could come in. He says, "Okay, in light of Christ, there's a people who's eating of the tree of life." Verse seven. He who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's formula from Jesus in the Gospel. He who has ears, let him hear. What the Spirit, that is the Spirit of Christ, says to the churches, the one who conquers, the word from which we get the word Nike, conqueror, overcomer. This is about the church that overcomes in Christ. I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God or the garden of delight, the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God in the beginning and the garden of Eden until the fall into sin, but it will be reclaimed in a new heavens and a new earth. And there will be the eating of the tree of life in the kingdom of God. Seventeen times it talks about those who conquer in Revelation. And we conquer by the word of our testimony and the blood of the Lamb. Genesis two nine, the tree was in the middle of the garden. 3.24, they're driven out from the garden, forbidden to come to the tree. Revelation 22:2: 2, in the middle of the street in the ultimate city of God and the people of God partake of it. What a glorious way to end. None of us deserve to eat of the tree of life in the kingdom of God. None of us. But because we can, we are liberated to love. Love. Christ, each other, and the lost. And so the primary thing we do is not just shake our head at what people do. The primary thing we do is think about Jesus and the Gospel and how it can transform lives because it transformed our life. Jesus calls us to live in attention. People always want to go one extreme or the other. Truth... With Jesus displaced, lacks love. Pseudo-love with Jesus displaced abandons truth. Neither are acceptable. The Apostle Paul has a phrase he uses. My favorite theologian, uh, pastor of all time, Andrew Fuller, uses this over and over and over and over again. He quotes Paul and he applies it to everything. He says, we are people who know the truth as it is in Jesus. That's it. Truth as it is in Jesus. And that's the only way we will truly speak the truth in love. The truth as it is in Jesus. Do you need to remember, repent, and redo? Or perhaps you don't know the love of Christ and you can't redo Because you've never known. Some need that first love today, and nothing is keeping you from it but you. If you would put your faith in Christ today, you would know the love of Christ that saves. Let's pray.